Last time we spoke about the incredible Japanese victory at the Battle of Savo Island. Admiral Mikawa audaciously attacked the American and British naval forces despite them being larger and having potential aircraft carrier support. Mikawa's force killed more than a thousand allies, sunk four warships, and damaged many others. However, as great as this victory was to be, Mikawa ultimately failed to destroy the transport ships at Guadalcanal and Tulagi. The Americans were forced to leave their marines on the islands all alone to face the IGA in a war over their precious airfields. Could Vandegrift's men, without all the required supplies, be able to hold the airfield on Guadalcanal? Only time will tell. In order to give the marines even more of a fighting chance, today a new raid will be performed to divert the gaze of the Empire of Japan. This diversion, however, would not stop one of the bloodiest battles from occurring on August the 21st. This episode is the Battle of Alligator Creek. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China, narrated and written by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I have episodes going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. We now come back to our story, after the Battle of Savo Island, where Turner has made a fateful decision. Turner stayed a day longer, but ultimately had to pull the Navy out, leaving Vandegrift and the Marines all on their lonesome. Vandegrift gathered his subordinates near a place called Alligator Creek, during a particularly hard rain, and he described the scene to his biographer like this. Singly, or in pairs, they straggled to my CP. The colonels, lieutenant colonels and majors, on whom so much depended. They already were, sorry-looking lot with bloodshot eyes and embryonic beards and filthy dungarees. They were tired, they did not talk much as they slumped to the wet ground under the coconut palms and huddled over their knees against rain hissing on a pathetic fire. Some smoked, others sipped black coffee from aluminum canteen cups and swore when the hot metal touched their chapped lips. Most of them watched the beach and the parade of small boats landing survivors whose semi-naked bodies black from burns and oil of the sunken ships claimed the ministrations of our doctors and corpsmen. Even as they watched, the cruiser Chicago, her bow shot away, limped past transports busily hoisting landing craft to their decks. The picture of the situation could be cut in two. One part was mass confusion. None of the Marines knew exactly what occurred in the naval battle. The other part was the despair because only a fraction of the supplies and virtually none of the heavy equipment had been unloaded. 
Vandegrift told his key officers quietly that the carriers had pulled out and the transports were about to follow them. He told the officers to pass the news to the men, but to also inform them this was not going to be a Batan or Wake Island kind of situation. Next, Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Thomas, the operations officer, laid out three immediate tasks confronting them. Number one, they had to form a defensive perimeter around the airfield. Number two, they had to move the supplies within the perimeter. And number three, they had to finish the airfield construction. Their mission had flipped upside down on them overnight. Vandegrift perceived the security of the airfield as the mission, pending a favorable turn in the naval and air situation. He thought the Japanese move would be a counterlanding and a march upon the unfinished airfield. The transports left 6,075 marines in the tulagi gapitu tanambogo area, while there was about 10,819 marines left to defend Guadalcanal. The limited rifle strength in Guadalcanal dictated an elementary defense plan. They had to stop any landing at the water's edge. Vandegrift placed a defense on the eastern bank of the beach at Alligator Creek, with a short extension inland of 600 yards west of that bank. The defensive line traversed the shore west to a point 1,000 yards southwest of Kukum, where it met some low hills in a coastal strip. The 5th Marines held the western half of the 9,600-yard-long beach defensive line. The eastern half of the line from Lunga to Alligator Creek was guarded by the 1st Marines. Vandegrift had placed four battalions on the line, holding a single battalion in reserve alongside a tank company. The southern half of this oval-like perimeter amounted to another 9,000 yards of dense jungle. Artillery and support units would be close by Linguna, around some ridges to provide rudimentary defense from snipers and such. The scarcity of picks, axes, and shovels, and a lack of mines made fortifying the beaches a lackluster job. Only 18 reels of barbed wire was laid out, but the marines managed to acquire some more barbed wire from cattle fences on the Lunga Plain provide a thin barrier. The defense consisted of continuous weapon emplacements and foxholes backed by mortars and infantry. Two battalions of the 75mm howitzers and one of the 105mm howitzers were dug in south of the airfield where they could shell any point in the perimeter. Colonel Robert Pepper's 3rd Defense Battalion dug in a battery of 99mm anti-aircraft guns north of the airstrip so deeply that when they were depressed, the guns were completely below ground level. Anti-aircraft machine guns were also placed around the airstrip. Their supply route to Beach Red, 3 miles from the airstrip, was exposed to land, sea, and air attack. It is extremely fortunate the Japanese did not seize the opportunity to hit the supply line. The Marines managed to acquire a lot of captured Japanese supplies, equipment, and food. The food particularly interested the Marines. There was tins of fruit, seaweed, slices of beef in soy sauce, crab meat, milk, a ton of rice, and candy. They also found sake and beer, which the quartermaster tried to get his hands on, but before he could, a lot of it went unofficially to the men. <laughs> Now the Japanese left a lot of their construction equipment and this was greedily seized as the Marines' survival literally based on the completion of the airfield. Admiral Turner promised aircraft by August the 11th and the Marines went to work scrambling to build up the airfield. By August the 12th, the runway reached 2,660 feet. By August the 18th, it would be 7,778 feet. 
It was around 150 feet wide, running east to west. On August the 12th, it was named Henderson Field after Lofton Henderson, a Marine Squadron commander, lost during the Battle of Midway. On that same day, Henderson Field received its first American aircraft, Admiral McCain's personal Catalina flown by his aide, Lieutenant Simpson. Upon landing, Lieutenant Simpson said the field was fit for fighters. The first few nights were anxious, to say the least. A small party of Japanese, perhaps some starving laborers, provoked a good deal of indiscriminate firing near the airstrip. The Marines had made passwords to scream to another in case of friendly fire, and the night was filled with them. No Japanese aircraft appeared on August the 9th, and those that were seen on the following day, well, they did not bomb them. On the 11th, six Zeros strafed the Marines and three bombers tried to hit them, but they only snagged some jungle. On the 15th, the Marines captured some woven baskets released by Japanese aircraft containing food, ammunition, and a message reading, Help is on the way! Banzai! The IGN sent small ships and submarines starting on the 12th, pouring searchlights on the beaches and occasionally tossing some shells. All the while, Vandegrift ordered patrols with the dual purpose of securing their perimeter and trying to locate the Japanese garrison so it could be destroyed. Many Korean laborers were found, some partially armed. The Marines called them termites, and some surrendered. Many more, however, most likely starved to death in the jungle, being abandoned by the Japanese. A probe by the 5th Marines ran into some firm resistance at the Matanikau River on August the 9th and the 10th. At the Matanikau, a Japanese sailor had been captured, and after interrogations, he said the group the 5th Marines had found might be induced to surrender. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Goach, the division intelligence officer, took this information alongside a report from some Marines that they had seen a white flag west of the Matanikau. This might mean that the Japanese were trying to surrender there. Vandegrift reluctantly permitted him to take 25 men to patrol. Goach led the patrol by boat from Kukum, after dark on August the 12th, to a fate unclear. It seems they came ashore quite close to Matanikau, and as Ghosh stepped into the brush off the beach, the Japanese fired upon them. Ghosh was rapidly killed during the fire. The patrol got pinned down on the beach and was quickly decimated, with the Japanese killing off the Marines one by one. Only platoon sergeant Frank Few managed to escape by swimming approximately four miles through shark-infested waters. On August the 15th, the Marine sentries began to see two marching files of scantily clad natives approaching their perimeter from the east, led by a tall, bearded white man in a bush hat, a ragged shirt, and some trousers. The man was Captain Martin Clemens, the official representative of His Majesty's government. Vandegrift quickly accepted Clemens' offer of his services for intelligence and guides. Clemens' scouts proved to become the bane of the IGA on Guadalcanal as were most of the Coast Watchers for the Japanese in the Solomon Islands. Also on the 15th was the first time since Turner's withdrawal that the Allied vessels came to help the Marines. The destroyer transport Colhoun, Little Gregory, and McKean, sent by Gormley's order, carried fuel, munitions, tools, and spare parts. They also landed Ensign George Polk and 110 men of Cub 1. These men would perform fuel and arm the first aircraft for Henderson Field. Stepping ashore was also Lieutenant Colonel Charles Hayes, 
who carried with him a letter from Admiral McCain promising aircraft by the 18th or 19th. On the other side of the coin, on August the 16th, the destroyer, Oit, dropped the first Japanese reinforcements at Guadalcanal at Tassafaranga Point. 113 men of the 5th Yokosuka SNLF Marines under Lieutenant Takahashi. Captain Monson acknowledged their arrival and two days later signaled Rabal to report he had 100 fighting men and approximately 320 workers in the area, that being 1,100 yards west of Lunga Point. He also begrudgingly admitted he had another 1,000 workers scattered about in the jungle somewhere. After Goch failed to return from his patrol, Vandegrift contemplated striking at the enemy concentration west of Matanikau. However, this would jeopardize the security of the airfield, so he tempered his aggression. It took a week for Vandegrift to feel comfortable permitting the 5th Marines to set out for a strike against the Matanikau. Three companies would go each with a unique role. Company B, led by Captain William Hawkins, would occupy the Japanese attention by attacking across the sandbar at the mouth of the Matanikau. Company L, led by Captain Lehman Spurlock, would envelop the Japanese position by crossing the Matanikau and advancing north on its western bank. Company I, led by Captain Bert Hard, would take a boat to the west of Kokumbona to thwart enemy escape in that direction. On August the 18th, Spurlock's company initiated the attack by killing 10 Japanese while advancing 1,000 yards past a crossing point on the Matanikau. That afternoon, Hawkins' men got to the river's mouth and in the morning motor-striked the enemy at the sandbar. Meanwhile, Spurlock's men were fired upon from a ridge several hundred yards to their west, killing their platoon leader, so Lieutenant George Meade took charge, but he too was killed. Spurlock's men wheeled around while fending off the Japanese, until 2 p.m. when they had spread the net around Matanikau village. Spurlock then began hearing the Japanese yell, Banzai, which confirmed scout reports of an impending enemy charge. Spurlock made his men form a line so they can meet the bayonet charge with their short-range guns. A firefight raged between the dug-in defenders until 4 p.m. when the Marines entered the village to find 65 dead Japanese. Company L had lost 4 men, with 11 wounded. Company I ended up not participating too much during the offensive as their boats were attacked from a machine gun along the coast and a Japanese destroyer flung some salvos at them. Company I had to land and root out the Japanese in Kokobona village, driving them into the hills at the cost of a single marine. They then got back into their boats at 5pm to return to Kukum, just as Lieutenant Takahashi showed up claiming he had driven them all off. This entire engagement became known as the First Battle of Matanikau, and though small in scale, it harbored many lessons. Thus far, the Japanese reaction to the Allied landings in the Solomons had been met solely from air and sea resources at hand. A meeting at the Imperial General Headquarters on August the 7th reached a tentative consensus between the IGA and the IGN that the landings represented no more than a reconnaissance in force. They were greatly underestimating the number of the enemy, and the IGN was inflating the numbers of ships taken down in the Solomons. Regardless, the idea of the Allies controlling the airfield on Guadalcanal threatened them immensely, so they had to make plans to expel the invaders quickly. On August the 10th, after more reconnaissance, the IGN reported the units on Guadalcanal were a well-equipped U.S. Marine division. Now, the Japanese were still focused primarily on taking Port Moresby, so this was still going to get the lion's share of attention. 
But they came to an agreement, amending the mission of Lieutenant General Hayakotake's 17th Army. Now Hayakotake was to leapfrog the 17th Army and take Port Moresby. The new orders meant he would immediately retake Guadalcanal and Tulaki with forces made available to the 17th Army consisting of Major General Kiyotake Kawaguchi's 35th Infantry Brigade and the Oba and Ichiki detachments. The 35th Infantry Brigade was at the time in the Philippines, but immediately available was Colonel Kiyonao Ichiki's detachment at Guam. A naval sweep of Guadalcanal by Aegean destroyers on August the 11th and 12th confirmed the absence of Allied naval forces and the Goch disaster seemed proof the Americans were weak on the island. Then a fateful report came on August the 12th by a senior staff officer of the 8th Base Force, Lieutenant Commander Matsunaga. He had rowed in one of three bombers to Guadalcanal and from 10,000 feet above Lunga Point failed to see many marines frolicking around the airfield and just a few boats in the water. From this observation, he concluded that the main body of the Marine Division had withdrawn. Matsunaga's superiors, they believed his report. That same day, Lieutenant General Moritaki Tanabe radioed Hayukatake this. The scope of operations for the recapture of strategic points in the Solomon Islands will be decided by the Army Commander on the basis of his estimate on the enemy situation. General Headquarters believes that it is feasible to use the 35th Infantry Brigade and the Aoba Detachment if the situation demands. However, since tactical opportunity is primary consideration under existing conditions, it is considered preferable, if possible, to recapture those areas promptly, using the Ichiki Detachment and Special Naval Landing Forces. And so the Japanese sent the Ichiki Detachment on its lonesome into the fray. At the 17th Army HQ, the Chief of Staff, Major General Akisaburo Futami, reckoned the Americans to be about 7-8,000 men strong, and he hesitated to send Ichiki alone. A radio message summoned Ichiki to truck, where he received his new orders. He was told American strength was still unknown, but they appeared quiescent. His order was to recapture the airfield and, if possible, occupy it and await reinforcements. A spearhead of 900 men under Ichiki would proceed to the island immediately and land at Tevu Point. A diversionary attack would be made west of the American defensive perimeter by 250 NSLF Marines, landing at Kokubona. Kiona Ichiki had a great reputation. He also infamously led actions during the Marco Polo Bridge incident in 1937. His detachment had been given the task of amphibious assaulting the Midway Atoll, but, of course, he lost the chance when the Battle of Midway went south. Ichiki was a strong proponent of night attacks with swords and bayonets. Now, Matsumoto gave Ichiki a written side note. If his attack failed, he should occupy a position near the airfield and launch repeated night attacks to prolong their work on the airfield. Matsumoto later claimed he warned Ichiki that they might be 10,000 U.S. Marines on the island, so he should avoid frontal attacks. Ichiki told Matsumoto he would attack the airfield on the second night after landing, and that his men would carry only 250 rounds of ammo each and seven days rations. This was due to the transportation restrictions, but also a show of confidence. Ichiki even boasted he would take Tulagi after securing Guadalcanal, and expressed his gratitude for being awarded such a grand mission after having his midway day stolen. 
Ichiki was transported by Rear Admiral Reizo Tanaka's destroyer squadron number two. 900 of his men and Ichiki would depart truck on August 18th and a second detachment of 1,100 men and supplies would come later on August the 23rd. At 1am on August the 19th, Ichiki and his men were on Tevu Point and with utmost confidence he marched them straight westwards towards Henderson Field. They slipped into the jungle to rest and avoid detection. Now American radio intelligence heard some communications about Ichiki moving to Guadalcanal and upon the arrival of Destroyer Squadron 2, this was all but confirmed. Admiral Nimitz issued an alert warning on August the 17th that they thought someone was coming to the Solomons to either reoccupy Guadalcanal or Tulagi, and he identified the forces as SNLF Marines and a special shock unit, Ichiki's detachment. Nimitz said the attack date was unknown, but predicted August the 20th. American intelligence, folks. Incredible how spot-on it was during the war. Thus, Vandegrift knew something was coming, and what it probably was, but he had no idea where they would land. Clemens scouts reported to the Marines the movement of Ichiki's patrol. At noon on the 19th, Captain Charles Bush was on a patrol with 60 men from Company A of the 1st Marines when Clemens' native guides warned them the Japanese were close. Rush hastily launched an attack on the enemy from the front while more of his men tried to hit their left flank. The firefight lasted an hour and the marines managed to kill 33 Japanese, sending the survivors fleeing. Rush lost three men and had three wounded for his efforts. While Brush's men checked the bodies, they noted they were IGA and not SNLF. He found a map which betrayed them to be part of a larger unit. From the map, Brush gauged the Japanese knew about the American defensive lines at Alligator Creek. He gathered all the documents he could find and he went back to the Marines. Word reached Ichiki about the firefight at around 4.30pm. He ordered a company to rush forward to help, but it came far too late and by 5pm he learned that the patrol had been virtually annihilated. Ichiki, without pause, to reflect on the disaster, pressed forward and did not halt until 4.30am after crossing the Nalambu River. Brush returned to Vandegrift with all the documents and his story of what had unfolded. Vandegrift now knew the size, location, and intention of this new enemy. Many of Vandegrift's officers argued to send a reserve battalion to hit the incoming Japanese force, but Vandegrift thought the enemy might have a trick up their sleeve, perhaps landing at another location on their flanks. So he chose wisely to await the Japanese attack within the defensive perimeter. Martin Clemens' native friends called the watercourse Alligator Creek after its inhabitants, which were crocodiles. It was part of the Teneru River, and technically the title of this upcoming battle should be called the Battle of Teneru River, but Alligator Creek simply has a better ring to it. Regardless of its name, it's a tidal lagoon that empties into the sea. It's no more than 100 feet wide, at any point separated from the ocean by a sandbar that rises about 25 to 50 feet. On August 20th, Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Pollock's 2nd Battalion of the 1st Marines manned the west bank of Alligator Creek from a point just 1,000 yards inland north of the sandbar. Their sister 3rd Battalion was just west of them. The Marines had strung a single strand of barbed wire fence and dug in machine guns covered by the sandbar. Ichiki gathered his officers and issued the plan of attack. They would essentially march down the beach to assault the old camp of the 11th Construction Unit between Alligator Creek and Lunga Point. 
Once secure, they would fan out to seize the airfield. Ichiki expected to pierce the defensive perimeter easily, and as he put it, it would be one brush of an armored sleeve. It was pitch dark as the Japanese approached, and at midnight, a marine sentry called out towards a noise that did not respond back, and thus firing began. Ichiki reached Alligator Creek at 12.30 and ordered an assault on the sandbar while covering fire was provided. At 2 a.m., a green flare arched over the mouth of the lagoon as the second company of 100 men charged over the sandbar. In the eerie green light, the marines sprayed the enemy with machine gun fire and 37mm canisters. The charging Japanese reached the barbed wire fence, breaking their momentum just 30 yards in front of the marine emplacements. Men scrambled to get over another, grabbing their bayonets and swords. Pollock's marines were grass-green, but resolute. A forward gunner, Private John Rivers, slammed hundreds of rounds into the Japanese phalanx, until a bullet struck him in the face, killing him dead. As he died, his fingers continued to squeeze the trigger for another 200 rounds. Corporal Lee Diamond grabbed the gun and fired until his arm was wounded. He yelled to Private Albert Schmid to grab the gun, who fired until a grenade exploded in front of him. The grenade's fragments pierced both of his eyes, blinding him, but he continued to fire as Diamond told him where to aim. Ichiki ordered the first and third companies to attack, but no progress was being made. A bold group of Japanese swam Alligator Creek and set up a machine gun beside an abandoned amphibious tractor. Pollock saw the penetration at the sandbar and ordered Company G to counterattack, and within an hour, the line was restored. The attackers at the barbed wire were all dead. Ichiki then tossed his machine gun company and his battalion guns. They were met by 75mm shells from the 3rd Battalion of the 11th Marines, who were on the sandbar just 100 yards from the Marines' line. Ichiki dispatched another company to try and infiltrate, but the marines caught the group and raked them with machine gun fire and artillery. Then Ichiki's main body withdrew to a coconut grove just 200 yards away from the sandbar. A firefight rattled the entire night. From a distance, Martin Clemens' chief scout, Fuza, decided to stop by a village to drop off a small American flag presented to him by the marines. When he got to the village, he was caught by a group of Japanese led by Ishimoto a man who had spent time on Tolagi, and knew Vuza. They tied Vuza to a tree, trying to interrogate him, but he would not respond. They beat him, bayoneted him, and sliced his neck. After some hours, Vuza regained consciousness, and he chewed through the ropes, breaking him free, and he ran for the marine perimeter to warn them. He told the marines everything he could about what he had saw, as Clemens held his hand, assuming the man was giving his dying words. Yet, Fuza just kept talking, and talking, and talking. The man was not dying. Fuza miraculously survived, being pumped full of blood by some of the American Marines who had donated it. Within two weeks, he would make a full recovery, and once again help the patrol. Vandegrift would award Vuza the Silver Star Medal, and honored him further by appointing him Sergeant Major of the United States Marine Corps. On a funny note, those of you who might remember my interview with uh, Dave Holland, he had a funny story to add to all of this. Vuza would later say he was given so much blood by the Marines that he was half American himself. The man was a local legend, and still is. As day broke, Ichiki refused to withdraw. They were still at a standstill. 
Vandegrift's officers began to stress they should envelop the attacker's position and finish them off. The decision was made to send the reserve battalion with a platoon of light tanks across Alligator Creek to encircle and destroy the Japanese near the sandpit. At 7 a.m., Company D on the east bank made a breakout southeast. At 9.50, their companions swung north while Company C reached the coast first, isolating the Japanese platoon. Many of the Japanese broke into a bayonet charge and were met by Company C's gunfire. Companies A and B compressed Ichiki's forces into the mouth of the lagoon. All morning long, Pollock's men motored and rifle-fired down the Japanese. All the Marines closed in slowly as Ichiki's men attempted to break out to the east but were met by Company C's gunfire. The platoon of light tanks rolled into the Coconut Grove and Lieutenant Leo Case recalled, Their treads rattled industriously. We watched these awful machines as they plunged across the spit and into the edge of the groove. It was fascinating to see them bustling amongst the trees, pivoting, turning, spitting sheets of yellow flame. It was like a comedy of toys, something unbelievable, to see them knocking over palm trees which fell slowly, flushing the running figures of men from underneath their treads, following and firing at fugitives. It was unbelievable to see men falling and being killed so close, to see the explosions of Jap grenades and motors, black fountains and showers of dirt near the tanks, and see the flashes of explosions under very thick treads. Ichiki's men lacked anti-tank guns. Many of the Japanese bravely confronted the tanks with grenades or magnetic anti-tank mines. Vandegriff would later write, the rear of the tanks look like meat grinders. By 4.30 p.m., Ichiki realized all had been lost. He burned his regimental colors and committed seppuku. Some groups of survivors tried to flee in the only direction possible, the sea. They were systematically shot down, trying to swim away. Corman moved among the dead Japanese, hoping to find survivors but a number of Ichiki's men chose to use their last breath by taking an American with them. They jumped up and shot at the Marines. The Marines quickly learned to send rounds into the bodies rather than risk their own lives. A single Japanese soldier surrendered. Twelve wounded Japanese, including an officer, were captured. Only two unwounded survivors would later become POWs. The Marines had around 43 dead. 71 wounded, but they had annihilated at least 777 Japanese. While the battle was not a giant one, it held a psychological effect that would last the entire war. The failure of any significant number of Ichiki's men to surrender and their last attempts to kill Marines proved a very shocking lesson to the Marines. Even Vandegrift learnt this lesson when he wrote a few days later to a fellow general. General, I have never heard or read of this kind of fighting. These people refuse to surrender. The wounded wait until men come up to examine them, and blow themselves and the other fellow to pieces with a hand grenade. Now, as exciting as all of this has been, we actually have to take a little venture over to the Gilbert Islands for a moment. If you remember, the Americans wanted to conduct a diversionary raid to distract the Japanese from sending more reinforcements to the Solomons. 
They chose to attack the three-sided atoll Makin, which held a lagoon measuring around 8 to 16 miles. The Marine Raiders were chosen to raid the atoll, specifically the 2nd Raider Battalion of Lieutenant Colonel Evans Carlson. Carlson had trained his battalion in a very unorthodox fashion, with an emphasis on teamwork, taking some inspiration from the Chinese CCP guerrillas and their gung-ho philosophy. By gung-ho, this refers to allowing troops the liberty to propose options based on their own ideas and battle experience. Carlson had proposed to abolish the distinction between officer and enlisted men, and instead to look at units as leaders and fighters, with leaders receiving no better treatment and getting selected only for their ability rather than seniority. It was pretty bold stuff. By August the 9th, this unorthodox methods would be put to the test, as companies A and B, some 211 men, would depart from Pearl Harbor on board the submarines USS Nautilus and Argonaut, heading for Makin Atoll. The plan was to perform a pincer maneuver. Company A would land on Beach Y, and rapidly move northwest across the island to the main lagoon side road. It would then deploy security on its left flank and capture the western half of Butaritari village, including the Burns Phillips store. They would destroy vital installations, with particular attention to Anchong's and King's wharves. Company B would land on Beach Z and move northwest across the island to the Lagoon Side Road, secure its right flank, and capture the eastern half of Butaritari village. They would then destroy installations with particular attention to the government wharf and the Japanese trading station. After completing their objectives, they would hightail it back to the submarines. Now, American intelligence was a bit shaky on the Gilberts. For one thing, they thought Makin was the main base, when in reality it was actually Tarawa. They expected to find some 250 enemy troops on Makin, probably SNLF Marines. In reality, they would just find 37 IGN personnel from the 61st Guard Force led by Warren Officer Kanemitsu Hisesaburu. On the night of August the 16th, Carlson's raiders jumped into 20 rubber boats and successfully landed ashore. Carlson ordered A Company to advance across the island to Lagoon, while B Company held back to deploy as a flank for security and reinforcement. The landings had not been perfect, so the pincer maneuver had to be disregarded. They rapidly secured the government house without any resistance and quickly ambushed some unsuspecting Japanese at the lagoon. At 6.30, the Japanese had walked right into a trap as the raiders opened fire at close range, killing a large amount of the garrison. However, Japanese snipers were all about and kept the raiders pinned down for over two hours. The raiders suffered 12 casualties, and the Japanese surprisingly made two bonsai charges, resulting in carnage as the raiders cut them down with automatic fire. By midday, organized resistance had fallen apart, but Carlson was overcautious and refused to advance any further inland, as he believed a larger force was awaiting them. Snipers continued to harass the raiders, though in reality the Japanese had been virtually wiped out. First Lieutenant Oscar Petrus and 11 men landed a mile southwest and ventured inland attacking the rear of the enemy. In the ensuing firefight, Kanemitsu was shot dead. By 7.10am, the USS Nautilus began to open fire on the lagoon and unexpectedly found two Japanese ships and quickly sunk them. The IGN reported the invasion to HQ and airstrikes were being launched. Soon, 10 floatplanes began to bomb the raiders being escorted by four Zeros which tried to strafe them for over an hour. 
The Raiders managed to shoot down two float planes who were trying to land, but the Raiders knew they could not stay on the island for much longer. Carlson decided to withdraw that night in a rather disorganized fashion. While Petros' squad was returning to the Nautilus, Carlson's raiders had failed to adequately prepare their departure boats. At 7.30, the boats were launched and the raiders were forced to paddle for their lives in brutal weather resulting in only seven boats successfully making it to the submarine on the first attempt. Carlson remained on Makin with the rest of the men preparing a defensive line forced to spend the night. The raiders were panicking as they thought they were stranded and left for dead. Carlson dispatched a note to the Japanese offering to surrender, but allegedly the Japanese messenger was killed by other marines who were unaware of the situation. The raiders held tight, and during the morning of August 18th made a second attempt. This time, four boats managed to get past the brutal waves to the submarine. Those men reported that Carlson was moving towards the lagoon's entrance with the last 30 men. By 8.30, Carlson's raiders reached King's Wharf where they ignited 1,000 drums of aviation fuel and destroyed a nearby radio station. Enemy air raids continued throughout the day, forcing the raiders to hunker down in some foxholes. By the afternoon, a makeshift craft was assembled and the submarines tried to get closer to the lagoon's northwestern entrance. At 8.30pm, Carlson and his remaining men finally made it to the submarine and by 11pm they were en route back to Pearl Harbor. Carlson suffered 21 dead and 17 injured, with a further 9 men stranded and later executed on Malkin by the Japanese. They had killed 80 Japanese but failed to cause significant damage to the facilities. The raid failed to divert reinforcements to the Gilberts, as the Japanese quickly figured out it was just a feint. The only real saving grace to the raid was how it showcased the vulnerabilities on the Gilberts. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget, we have a sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. What an action-packed adventure we had today! The Marines on Guadalcanal sure got their first taste of what was going to be the ever-growing horror upon any island held by the Japanese. Ichiki's annihilation was just one of the first horrifying lessons the United States Marine Corps would learn as they battled for the island of death by starvation.